This week, growing old gracefully. There are some species where mortality remains pretty constant and there are others where it even declines with age. As these species age, they get less and less likely to die. And lessons from a lizard-loving lab. Luckily for us, we worked on the savannah monitor lizard and they were quite small and they were quite friendly and pleasant to work with. Plus ways to avoid a shortage of isotopes crucial for hospital scans. This is the Nature Podcast for December the 12th, 2013. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. You know how humans breathe in and out through the mouth, filling and emptying the lungs. Birds do things differently. They still breathe in and out through their mouth, but once inside the lungs, the air navigates around a sort of one-way system. They seem to be unique in this unidirectional airflow, and that seemed to make sense for this peculiar group of feathered reptiles with their mastery of the skies. Scientists thought the breathing had to do with flight, until recently, that is, when similar airflow patterns were discovered in a different group of reptiles, the crocodiles and their close relatives. That pushes back the origins of this pattern of airflow to the time of the dinosaurs, but could it be even older? To find out, Emma Schachner from the University of Utah and her colleagues examined a more distant cousin of the birds, the monitor lizard. Pigeon fanatic Jeff Marsh gave her a call. How does my breathing differ from that of a pigeon, for example? So in humans, when you breathe in, air goes into your lung to the gas exchanging units. And then when you breathe out, that air travels back through the same pathway and then out your mouth or nose. So when a bird breathes in, some of the air goes to these regions in the lung specifically for storage. And other air moves from tail to head through the actual gas exchanging region of the lung. And then when they breathe out, that air that was stored in the rest of the lung gets pushed through the gas exchanging portion of the lung in the exact same direction. So what is it about birds that necessitates this peculiar airflow in the lungs? We don't really know the answer to that because historically it was believed that birds were the only animals that had unidirectional flow. But Colleen Farmer, my colleague, she found that this is going on in alligators. In 2010, that was the first time anyone had found any unusual flow patterns in an animal other than a bird. How old would that suggest that this trait is? So it's at least as old as the Mesozoic when the dinosaurs were around. But we were wondering when the first appearance of this trait shows up. So we were testing this in modern lizards, because if it's present in lizards and it's present in birds and crocodilians, then it's possibly a trait that evolved in the common ancestor of all of these different groups, maybe even 270 million years ago. Now, I've seen a monitor lizard and they are big, scary beasts. Surely that was, was that a bit of a daunting task, um, having a look at the inner workings of a, a living monitor lizard's lungs? Well, luckily for us, we worked on the savannah monitor lizard, and they were sub-adults, so they were all about one to three pounds. They were quite small, and they were quite friendly and pleasant to work with. And how do you decipher the, the direction of air inside this animal? So what we did was implanting an airflow probe, and then we had the animal breathe on its own, and we were able to see what direction the air was flowing within the lung in that spot and at the nose. What kind of airflow did you find then? Were they breathing like birds or like our mammalian podcast listeners? So the really exciting thing is that they were breathing in a similar manner to 
birds and crocodilians. So air was moving from one airway to the next during both phases of the respiratory cycle. Now, the fact that you've identified unidirectional airflow in this separate group to the birds and the crocodile-like animals sort of leaves you with two evolutionary scenarios about when this trait came about. Yes, so it's very possible that in monitor lizards, this trait evolved completely independently, but it's also possible that it was present in the ancestor of both lizards and both birds and crocs. But in order to really understand that, we need to look at lungs of, like, for example, snakes, geckos. There's thousands and thousands of species of reptiles, and we have no idea what their flow patterns are like. Right, but let's say it had evolved twice independently in these two different lineages. What would that tell you about the kind of evolutionary significance of the trait? There are hypotheses that animals who can ventilate unidirectionally have advantages in conditions of hypoxia. So all reptiles hold their breath for periods of time, even ones that are terrestrial and don't swim. And my colleague, uh, Colleen Farmer, she hypothesized that there was an advantage to having air move in the lung while holding your breath. So you're getting oxygen extraction during breath holding versus in a mammal you use up the oxygen that's in your lung and then you have to expel it. Would you say that this finding has made the the story of vertebrate lung evolution more complicated? Because it seemed to be such a, a nice, simple story before that birds had these peculiar lungs, but then they're peculiar reptiles because they fly. Exactly. People always associated these unidirectional airflow patterns in birds with their active lifestyle, even with their warm-bloodedness. But the fact that we find this in lizards now and crocodilians suggests that it evolved for some completely different reason, may have evolved more than once. We really don't know that much about lizard and bird lungs, or not nearly as much as we thought we did. If unidirectional airflow were ancestral to all three of these big groups of animals, what do you think that that ancestral beast would have looked like? So this would have been an animal that lived approximately 270 million years ago and would have looked very much like a modern lizard, kind of like uh, in a modern iguana. Does this tell us anything about how some extinct animals would have breathed? Yes, so we do know that it's ancestral for birds and crocodilians, or at least the evidence suggests that, which means that we can reconstruct unidirectional airflow patterns in dinosaurs and in pterosaurs, the flying reptiles that lived at the same time. And if it's ancestral for all three groups, we can reconstruct these flow patterns for marine reptiles, the extinct reptiles that lived in the sea at the same time as dinosaurs. That was Emma Schachner talking to Lizard King Jeff Marsh. In 2009, something happened to force hospitals around the world to cancel scans and postpone patients' operations. A new superbug? No. A global power shutdown? Guess again. Two nuclear research reactors came offline for repairs and maintenance, and the connection is they were providing most of the world's supply of technetium-99, a radioactive tracer used in tens of thousands of medical scans a day. That was four years ago, but as reporter Richard Van Norden explains in a feature this week, there is still a bottleneck in the supply of these important isotopes. Richard joins me in the studio. Now, first off, what kinds of isotopes are we talking about here and what kind of applications do they have in hospitals? We're talking about technetium-99 and and just technetium-99. It's really the workhorse of medical imaging. It's a radioactive tracer and you essentially attach it to a molecule that you'll then inject into the patient's body 
Essentially, uh, the radioactive molecule passes through your body, localizes to, for example, the heart, and then you can use a camera to see, for example, whether there are holes in your heart or how the blood flow is changing. Typical diagnostic scan, and technetium is used in 70,000 of these scans every day. Now, in 2009, and actually again since, that's gone awry. Um, How come these reactors were allowed to shut down at very similar times? Well, essentially, the economics of this is a massive mess. All of these reactors are research reactors, and their governments pay for them. They do research. For example, they look at new materials for nuclear confinement and so on and so forth. And as a sort of sideline, they make molybdenum, which is a radioactive precursor that gets sent out to hospitals um, and sort of decays into the technetium on site. Now, these reactors are very old. They're all made in the 50s and 60s. There are heavy water leaks. They need to be shut down. They need to be repaired. And it just shows how fragile the supply chain is, that just two of them can shut down in 2009 and in 2010. And in fact, just a few weeks ago, there were three offline very briefly. And suddenly, hospitals are short of the isotope they need. And what were the effects then on on patients, perhaps, on hospitals of the big shutdown in 2009? Doctors in different countries were affected in different ways, but in the United States and Canada, where the the bigger shortages, they had to postpone operations, they had to cancel lots of scans, and people are reluctant to say that patients died because of this, but certainly patients were going in for operations without the requisite scans or perhaps waiting months for their operations. Or the doctors would switch to other older isotopes like thallium, um, which works just fine, but unfortunately dumps a higher dose of radiation in the patient, which is why people don't use it anymore. Um, And this can quickly throw hospital timetables and operations into disarray. Clearly, people want to avoid this happening again. And uh, your feature looks at a few different ways of doing that. Why not just continue to just maintain these things and make sure they don't all go offline at the same time? Yeah. So one answer is just build more nuclear reactors. Now, the reason that that might not be the answer is that after this crisis, experts looked at the system and said, well, hang on a minute. Governments have been subsidising these research reactors. They've been selling their molybdenum, which will make the technetium at way below market prices. This is not really a market at all. There's no incentive for anyone to invest in new infrastructure, and hence there's mess. So let's instead sell this isotope at market price. And as a result, we're talking about the price of molybdenum going up as much as 15 times. And this has suddenly let alternative technologies in. So you looked at uh, a couple of alternatives to using these giant government-subsidised nuclear reactors. Um, In the US, there are two projects, which is pretty useful, seeing as the US doesn't provide at the moment any of its own molybdenum. Um, Tell us about those two that are going on there. Well, these are all kind of um, tweaks on the um, existing idea of making molybdenum a central place and shipping it around the world to hospitals. Now, there's one company called Northstar. It actually has two separate ideas. And in the near term, it'll just use another nuclear reactor at the University of Missouri. And it's going to fire the reactor's neutrons not into uranium, but into molybdenum. Uh, They're trying to make their uh, new radioactive molybdenum that way. Um, In the longer term, they're hoping to use an accelerator, not a big accelerator like uh, the Large Hadron Collider or something, but a fairly small linear accelerator. In their case, um, they accelerate electrons, which shoot into a different isotope of molybdenum, molybdenum-100, and again producing um, the molybdenum-99 isotope, which is what's going to decay into the technetium. And there's another company called Shine, oddly also based in the same place as North Star in Madison, Wisconsin, also using a linear accelerator. They're shooting neutrons from an accelerator into uranium salts. And again, that gets away from the idea of this big nuclear reactor. 
It does, but it still has everything being made in one place and then shipped around, whereas the other project you've looked at is Canada-based, and there the idea is much more localised, right, to hospitals themselves. The idea there is that hospitals will just make what they need on site with small medical cyclotrons, and, and they already lots of hospitals already have cyclotrons to make other less common isotopes. And if you can adapt those to make your technetium on site... Well, then um, think of it like having lots of solar cells to produce your electricity in small localised places versus a big power plant in the middle and electricity being shipped around. That's the kind of contrast we're talking about here. Which of these strategies, Richard, seems most likely to you to be uh, successful? So the Canadians have already actually got going. They've already proven they can do this. And it's just a question of getting more cyclotrons out there. But, you know, they're quite small in number. They're not necessarily going to make a dent in the world, really, although I'm sure they'll work. Now, the other two projects, um, they might each supply half of what the US needs. But these are startup companies struggling to build these big plants. So essentially, what really matters is what is the price they're going to sell them or live them at? And probably what's going to happen is a bit like the electricity analogy, you're going to see uh, different sources of isotopes, just like we have wind power, solar power, hydropower, fossil fuels, all supplying our electricity, you're going to see big nuclear reactors, accelerators, small cyclotrons, all supplying different isotope sources. Thanks, Richard. Well, here's hoping the isotope ecosystem gets going soon then. Read the full feature available for free at nature.com news. By the way, if you want to get in touch with us about any of the stuff we cover, or just to say hello, there's now a new way to contact us, the Nature Podcast Twitter feed. Find us at Nature Podcast and give us a shout. Or stick to email if you like, podcast at nature.com. Now it's time for the research highlights read by Charlotte Stoddart. Scientists have used a gene editing technique to repair disease mutations in stem cells. The technique, called CRISPR, uses a search and repair strategy to target an enzyme towards a faulty gene and snip it out. Then a normal copy of the gene can be used as a template for the repair. Two teams managed to fix faulty genes. One team in the Netherlands repaired human stem cells which had the cystic fibrosis gene mutation. The other, in China, corrected a genetic eye disorder in mice. Extinct flying reptiles like the pterosaurs lived around ancient oceans and lakes and often feasted on fish. But they may not have been natural water babies, new research suggests. Two paleontologists made computer models of pterosaurs floating on a virtual ocean. They took account of the reptile's skeleton shape and bone density and found they could float on the water, but their heads were partially submerged. So they would have risked drowning if they spent too much time on the surface. Their hapless swim technique could explain why fossil hunters find higher numbers of juvenile pterosaurs than land-loving dinos. More details on both those papers on the Nature website. The News Chat is just around the corner with a two-for-one special, UK news editor David Ray and his US counterpart Eric Hand. But first, a search for the longest lifespan on the planet. After we're born, we begin the journey towards death. Somewhere along the way, we reach maturity and our reproductive potential peaks and we pass on our genes. And then we carry on plodding our way towards the grave. 
All right, perhaps that's a bit of a melodramatic way to look at life, but the most common view of what ageing is seems to fit quite neatly inside this pattern. It turns out, though, that if you look across the natural world, this picture isn't universal. Owen Jones and Rob Saluero Gomez are part of a team who've collected demographic data from across taxa to compare how different organisms experience ageing. Noah Baker travelled across London to meet them on a tree-filled campus in Silwood Park. Here's Owen Jones first. If you look across the tree of life, you find there's quite a lot of variety in how different species arrange their mortality, if you like. And do you find that, that different species seem to cluster together with similar species? So, you know, plants will be similar to plants and, and mammals will be similar to other mammals? It's fair to say that mammals, and in fact most vertebrates, seem to, to share this similar pattern of gradually increasing mortality with age. For other groups, particularly plants, it seems that there is a much more diverse range of uh, options open. So if we're talking about mortality, your options are from maturity to have mortality that increases with age, mortality that remains constant with age, and mortality that declines with age, so improvement with age. Does that mean that there are some organisms out there that the older they get, the less likely they are to die? That's true, yes, that's that's exactly what it means. So um, there were a few plant species that had these kind of patterns, but also some animal species. One of the animal species was the desert tortoise. This is one of the species that grows uh, throughout its life. It's getting bigger and bigger and less vulnerable to uh, the things which naturally cause its, its uh death in the world, so predation and so on. The third of these sort of um, modes of, of ageing and senescence you mentioned is where mortality just doesn't seem to be affected um, by, by age. And there's one particular example which is really, really striking that you've looked at in, in this paper. Yeah, that's the, the hydra, which is a freshwater polyp. It's a, it's a very small uh, organism. And this had a pattern which was very striking in the paper. We we have this amazing figure of um, 1400 years that a typical life course might be. Mortality is so low that if we had a huge population of these things after 1400 years we would still have 5% of the original uh, population left alive so they are remarkable. Now Rob you work primarily on the plant species in this study and um, we're sitting outside here in a, in a lovely space surrounded by big old trees and I can imagine some of these trees might be you know getting close to sort of a century in age is that is that fair to say? I would imagine so yeah. But they're still not going to outlive something you might find in the bottom of your pond? Yes so I think that one of the nice things of this line of research is that uh, taxonomic group size and other features of the organisms that we have looked at don't really tell us or allow us to predict how long are you going to get to live on average and what should your senescence trajectory be or look like that is are you going to undergo senescence are you are you become more decrepit as you get older or are you like in the case of many trees become more vigorous with age um, it's really puzzling to me that there doesn't seem to be any association of the taxonomic groups that we have looked at and it's also very puzzling to me that a uh, size the average size or the maximum size that a creature may achieve doesn't help us understand these patterns as well. Is there any possibility that through demographic studies like this you could start to predict evolutionarily the kind of life history that an, an organism would have? There's some candidate features of plants, for instance, that might help us understand whether they achieve very long lifespans or not. 
and one of them has to do with how modular you are. So you can think of plants for instance, and this also applies to many uh, animals like corals, as a collection of different units or modules that they all live together. If you take a look at that tree over there and chop off one of the branches, what you're doing effectively is you're decreasing the number of modules of that individual. But the whole individual in its whole keeps on living. If you try to do the same experiments to a non-modular organism like you or I, if I chop off your arm, I always say, chances are in the absence of, an, of a hospital, you're, you're on your way out. So I think that this analogy between being unitary like you and I are or being highly modular like trees or fungi or corals might be a very interesting candidate to look at or to look into the different patterns of senescence that different organisms might be, might be explaining. That was Rob Saluero Gomez and before him Owen Jones talking to the ageless Noah Baker. News time now and with the latest, David Ray and Eric Hand join me. They've each chosen their favourite story of the week and David, you've gone bananas for this one. Uh, Unfortunately, it's a fungal-based story. It is, yeah. Bananas, get them while you can. Obviously, a lot of agricultural crops are in danger of um, soil fungus and contamination from uh, from fungus, which can rot the the fruit. And bananas are no different. And in the 50s, we actually lost our main cultivar, a banana called the Gros Michel, to a disease called Panama disease. Panama disease has since sort of abated. Um, it's, it's been confined to Asia. But now a new strain, which is called the FOCTR4, has come back and is now jumping out of Asia. And in the last couple of months, it's been reported in Jordan and Mozambique. And I think that in itself is not a particular concern. Then neither of those places are big banana producers. But the danger is, of course, if it jumps over to somewhere like Latin America, which is an enormous producer of bananas, uh, especially the type that we buy in, in the supermarket, which is called the Cavendish. And there's a danger they could be wiped out. And this blight has got as far as Jordan and Mozambique, you said, both destinations pretty far from Asia. I mean, what's the likelihood that it could spread further? Well, the chance of it came from migrant workers uh, on the clothes or, or boots or tools or whatever, migrant, migrant workers. And therefore, if it's come that way, that far around the world, the ch- chances are it'll go, you know, all the way around to Latin America. And uh, we, we can't eliminate this, uh, this fungus. It, once it's there, it's there, it stays. And the only thing you can do is try and mitigate against it. Uh, and methods of sort of, you know, replanting and they're also trying to grow some new strains of the, the banana, which may or may not be uh, be immune to this fungus. The, the work on that is at a very early stage and it's highly unlikely, to be honest, that they will find the perfect combination of genes, which means this, uh, that they are uh, immune to the wilt. But we'll, we'll see how it goes. I, I suppose it doesn't help that bananas are often clonal, aren't they? Yeah, exactly, they are. And it's actually really hard to make new bananas. Uh, they're sort of obviously done by years of cross-bleeding and, and to find new types is particularly difficult, which is why if the Cavendish goes, the whole industry is set up to service this particular banana. So if we lose that and everyone else has to replant with uh, a variety which is resistant to FOC TR4, then it's enormous cash consequences and chances are a huge sort of dearth of supply of bananas for some years to come. And of course, you know, there are those of us who love bananas and it would be a shame to see them go. But is this anyone's primary food source or are we just seeing an effect mainly on, you know, Western supermarkets? Yeah, this is this is the thing. I mean, obviously, a lot of Africa, I think there's about 40 million people who are dependent on plantains, which are another species of banana. There's a cooking banana, I think they're called colloquially. But they're not actually affected, and no one sort of really knows why. It could well be because they're not produced under high-intensity farming. It's mostly subsistence farming. They're grown together with other species, so there's a sort of combined resistance in that effect. 
But um, yeah, no one's quite sure. So if they can harness the genes that come from these plantains and sort of uh, transplant them into another more commercial banana, then uh, the problem could be solved. But at the moment, that's a long, long way away from happening. Okay, David, thank you very much. Another thing that's a long, long way from uh, happening, or at least the likelihood of it being true, is a crazy story, Eric, that you've brought to us this week. Uh, This is about the possibility of early life existing in the very early universe. Yes, Carrie, that's right. Uh, uh, it's 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 really uh, something of a thought experiment from a Harvard researcher who points out that to keep water liquid, which we think of as being a major prerequisite for life, you don't have to rely on the warming influence of a star because in the very early universe, you have a different possible source of energy, and that, that's the afterglow of the Big Bang itself. So he thinks that the Big Bang and the early days of the universe was enough of a heat source to keep water at a liquid stage and therefore this possibility, this glimmer of life in the early universe. Yeah, so for for a few million years, you might have every rocky planet in the universe being bathed by this energy source that could potentially keep water liquid and that that would increase the chances for life. And really his main point is if that's true, then it challenges this major philosophical argument for our universe being the way it is. And what's that? You can't leave us there. I can't leave you there. That's called the anthropic principle. And, uh, you know, in short form, it basically says the universe is the way it is because we exist. You know, the universe has these very finely tuned physical parameters, uh, such as dark energy pushing apart the universe the way it does because we exist. I don't really understand how we could retroactively influence the universe, though. I mean, how does that theory work? No, it's more that of all the possible ways that the universe could be these parameters have to be this way in order for us to exist. I see. And does that have any impact then on on whether other universes exist? Yeah. So the anthropic principle is one major argument for this notion of the multiverse, that our universe actually might be a bit odd uh, with physical parameters finely tuned in this very weird way to make life possible, whereas the rest of these multiverses, all the other ones, actually have much more natural physical parameters uh, in which life is impossible. So the main point of this experiment is showing that, you know, there's another way in the early universe under very different physical parameters for life to exist. And that if there are, you know, other ways for life to exist with these radically different physical parameters, then we're not necessarily today the most natural. So life requires water, clearly, uh, but it also requires, doesn't it, a whole bunch of other ingredients that aren't necessarily in his recipe. I mean, how accurate is this? Yeah. So, I mean, two of the chief liabilities here, one um, would be time. You know, uh, this period of habitability would would only exist for several million years, you know, and and, and talk to a lot of uh, biologists and they might suggest that we mean maybe more like billions of years. And then the other point that scientists have made is that you don't just need a uniform heat source bathing all planets in hot, hot, hot to keep the water liquid. But you actually need cold, too. You want to go from, you know, you have both a heat source and a heat sink. Um, And that this sort of difference, this thermodynamic difference is important for life as well. I mean, to me as a non-physicist, as a non-philosopher, this does sound like quite a crazy theory. How are people in the community reacting to this? I think most of them think it's a crazy idea as well. Um, And that's not really the point, uh, whether or not aliens actually did exist 15 million years after the Big Bang. The point is just uh, uh, to explore uh, whether or not we are uh, the most natural, typical observers and, and whether or not this anthropic argument 
uh, can be challenged uh, because that has obviously huge implications, not just for our universe, but the multiverse. What a nice deep final thought there. Thank you to Eric and to David. Read more at nature.com slash news. That's it from us. Next week is our final episode of 2013 and we've got a very special guest. Check Twitter for the big reveal, but suffice to say that we're excited to be inviting someone so much funnier than us to share our studio. Plus, there'll be plenty of Christmas overindulgence as Ewan Calloway looks at how fermentation can help get your festive season fizzing. In the meantime, check out our latest video on how Gollum was digitally created for the big screen. You can watch that on the Nature Video YouTube channel. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. My precious. 